You're listening to Rabbits and Adol Kazilski. And since we're here for life, and, and we are told that the rabbis teach us uh, Torah is life. Without Torah, a Jew cannot live just like we cannot survive without water. We cannot survive without Torah. Torah is, in fact, uh, compared to water, just like water will uh, feed the body. And one cannot survive without it. Neither can one survive without the learning of Torah. And so welcome everybody to High FM, to the Torah slot where we are going to be looking into the five books of Moses, particularly into the Pasha of Noach. We're in the middle of the Noach, and I've got to tell you folks, I was smiling because as I was preparing for today's discussion, um, the verses we are going to look at now is just the seven days before the flood began. And one of the things that we are told is that it started drizzling. It started raining. Um, and it was there to start getting people, to try to get people to wake up. Not that they did, but that's what it was there for. And uh, I walked outside and saw that I needed an umbrella because it too had started raining. So I just had a quiet smile that uh, we were in sync with 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 the uh, with the happenings of this world with what's happening around us without further ado we are going to be looking into the book of genesis and we are going to start now on in chapter 7 chapter 7 verse 1 um, it's in the middle of the Parsha of Noach, in the middle of the, the section that we call Noach. And we're just at the point now before we um, are going to be entering the ark. In fact, we're soon about to enter it. There's a final call. And I'm going to read to you the verses that we're going to look at today. But I want you to hang in there. I want you to listen to, to the end because I have something unbelievably fascinating uh, to share with you. And, of course, I love hearing from you. I love hearing dialogue. So um, please keep the, the SMS number handy, 34519, or our WhatsApp number, 0618951019. We are going to have a fascinating uh, discussion, an in-depth discussion, just finishing up on the verses that we are learning today. So let's do the practical reading of the verses as we always start, and then let's take it from there. Verse 1 of chapter 7. Vayomer Hashem l'Noach. Hashem says to Noach, Bo ata v'chol beitcha elateva. You and all your household come into the ark. Ki otcha ra'iti. Tzadik lefanai bador hazeh, because it is you that I have seen as being righteous before me in this generation. Mikol habehema hatehoira, tikach lecha shiva shiva ish veishto. For of every clean animal, take to you seven pairs: a male and its mate, or a male and a female. And of all the unclean animals, he shnaim ishveishto, you should take two of each. Gam meof hashamaim, and also of the birds of the heaven, shiva shiva, seven of each, zachar nekeva, male and female, lehachayot zera alpenei kol so that they can keep their seed alive. Upon the face of the earth. Kileyamim od, because in one week's time, 
in one week's time, in seven days' time, Anochi mamtir al ha'aretz arba'im yom ve'arba'im laila. I will send rain upon the earth for forty days and forty nights. Umachiti et kol ha'yikum asher asiti me'al pane ha'adama. And I will blot out all the existence that I have made from the face of the earth. Vayas noach Hashem Noach did exactly what God um, commanded him. Noach ben Shishim meot shana. He was six hundred years old. Noach umhamabul haya maim al haaretz, and the flood was water upon the earth. These are the verses we are going to be studying. Interesting verses, and as always, what we are going to do is we are going to just take a little bit of a step back, look at a few commentaries just to um, fill in the gaps, fill in and get an understanding of what um, the, the these verses are teaching us, and then take a huge, giant leap into the world of Kabbalah um, in actually understanding what this these verses were telling us in its entirety and what it actually means to us and where, where we're holding. So hang on for the ride. 34519 is the SMS number 0618951019. Let's go back now to verse, chapter, uh, chapter 7 verse 1 where we get the commandment to Nach to enter into the Teva. God says over there, um, to, 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 uh, Noach, Vayomer Hashem, God says Lenoch, Bo El Hateva, come into Hateva, the ark. And, uh, we're, Rashi straight away goes and says that when we see the word the ark, what, sorry, not Rashi, even Ezra Nabarbanel, I beg your pardon, other commentators said, because Hateva, the ark, is in the definite article, uh, what they're saying here now is this is a reality, it's no longer a goal, it's actually about to happen. Now, Vayomer Hashem Noach, God says to Noach that the flood will begin in 17 days' time. We know the flood started on the 17th day of the second month. That's the 17th of Cheshvan. So for those of you not 100% familiar with the Jewish calendar, we have the month of Tishrei, which is the month of Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, Sukkot. Then we have the month of Cheshvan. So that's when, just so that you can actually understand in a timeline, when the flood started, we know that Cheshvan is the only month of the year that does not have any Yamim Tovim, does not have any holidays. In fact, it's called Mar Cheshvan, the bitter Cheshvan, because it's four weeks straight of not too much happening other than, thank God, uh, the Shabbos is in between, but certainly no Yom Tovs. And it was on the 17th day of the second month. So when we have this commandment now, Noach, come into the ark, um, the Ramban says we've got to understand then that this command to enter the ark came on the 10th day of the month. One very interesting nuance for those that um, are able to read the Hebrew, you will see all the time when we are looking at the story of Noah, whenever God has mentioned the word Elohim, one of God's name, this is how God is, um, is, is, is described, that God says, whenever it says God says, by Yomer Elohim, and God says. But now suddenly it, it swaps around, and it says, by Yomer Hashem, Yud Kei Vav Kei, a different name of Hashem, 
Um, and the rabbis pick, pick up that nuance and says that all the time it was talking about the attribute of strictness, which is representative of the name Elohim. Elohim, by the way, also has a uh, numerical value the same as the word Hateva, which means nature, means that most of the time God acts in a way of concealment, of constriction. We are unable to see his acts because we see them as acts of nature. God is hidden. It is also a attribute of um, strictness and of judgment because we can then blame it on anything and everything else. All right, even though it is God, um, the, we we kind of like because we don't see God, blame things that happen around us um, on on anything else but God. But the truth is, is that God's running the world. But there are times that ha- that God comes out in the Yud Kevavke in the name of Hashem, which is twenty six, which is a um, name of God that represents mercy And when we see the words Vayomer Hashem or Noach Noach must come out And God is speaking in a merciful way What he was telling Noach Is that he was going to save him In the attribute of mercy Not in the attribute of judgment And that he This was like another guarantee Another um, comfort to Noach That in fact he will He, his wife, his children His children's wife And all the animals he'll be carrying Would in fact survive you're listening to Rabbits and Adol Kazilski. Let's go back to Noah. So Noah is told to come into the ark, and then we see some very, very interesting um, language that is used. It says, um, God says to him, Tikach lecha shiva shiva ish um, veishto, umina behema ashelotahora, hishnaim ish veishto. Take for yourselves. Of the pure animals, of the clean animals, seven, seven pairs, ishve ishto, that means male and female, and of those animals that are not pure, take two. Now, there is a whole discussion about what did they mean by clean animals or pure animals, behema tohoira, um, clean animals as opposed to animals that are not clean. Certainly the Torah was not talking from a physical point of view, that the, you know some animals were dirty and some were clean. It was describing the, the spiritual makeup of the animals. And here we are taught that tahor here means that it is if and when it is imbibed by a human being, um, it's consumed by man, one does not... Uh, um, Get affected. One is not susceptible to the negative spiritual makeup of the animal. So the clean animals, the animals that were tahor, that were pure, and I like to use the word tahor better, um, pure as opposed to clean. They they had docile natures, um, and uh, they 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 were there to. They, they, they would reduce the susceptibility of the human being to become animal-like. And this is something that we know today, we've, we've discussed, it's not we, it's been discussed many, many, many times in many, many forums. You are what you eat. We know that as a fact. Okay, whatever we put in is what we get out. Um, and not only from a health perspective, but certainly also from a spiritual perspective, that which you take into you and which then by definition, becomes your blood and your sinews and your muscle and your tissues and who you are, um, affects you on a spiritual, in a spiritual way as well. And Torah has been very, very clear, um, that while we received the dispensation to eat meat only after Noah comes out of the ark, nevertheless, we have to make sure that the animals that we eat are docile in nature. And if you look at the animals, 
which we know have the signs of chewing the cud and having split hooves, if you look at those animals, and they have to, by the way, have both, um, you will see that all those animals are docile animals. They are domesticated animals. Um, and that then has a tremendous effect on our spiritual sensitivity, our emotional our, our mental sensitivity to things around us. Once we start indulging in other animals, um, that aggressiveness, that carnivorous um, desire that is found in those animals that are not considered pure by Torah become part of who we are and we have aggression in a much, much greater fashion. These domestic animals, those that chew the cut and have split hooves, are animals that are herbivores. They do not prey on other animals. Um, and that is really, really a huge statement in terms of the laws of kashrut and in having a an appreciation of the laws. They're not necessarily um, and only for health reasons. Though many people um, in the past have argued, you know what, kashrut was at a time when there was the black plague and if we kept kosher we didn't really think and now you know what, everything is sterilized and everything is, is kept at the right temperatures and everything's vacuum packed. There's no need to um, eat kosher anymore. On the contrary, how much more so even today where <clears throat> we are aware of that connection and we understand that connection, um, we need to make sure that we are only staying in the realm of tahor, in the, in the realm of purity and of, of cleanliness, in that we need to, um, to, to, to stay on the right of on the right side of eating correctly in terms of our spiritual, uh, in, in terms of our spiritual needs. Now, when it came to the kosher animals, therefore, they each had to come in, um, shiva, shiva. There were, um, sets of seven. And, um, it's, and then when it came to the non-kosher animals, there was shnaim, ishve ishto. Two of them. Now, one of the interesting things that we know, and it's a, a law when one is learning Hebrew in the original text, is that the Torah would not waste a nakuda, a dot, never mind a letter, never mind a word, in describing something if it doesn't have to. Meaning the Torah is written very succinctly. It's written to the point. It's written very, very precisely. So if one is having to describe something and one gives a couple of words for it. Every single word is measured. Now, one of the things that the rabbis pick up is that when it's talking about the kosher animals, God says, Mikol ha hatahora, from all the animals hatahora that are pure. Tikach lecha. Take for yourself seven and seven. And when it comes to the non-kosher animals, it says, um, Umin ha asher lo tahora. And from the animals which are not pure, he, Shnaim, Ish, Ishto, take two of each. And then I was going to say, well, that's a waste of three words. Asher, Lo, Tehoira, that are not pure. Why don't you just call them impure? There is a word in Hebrew for impurity. It's called Tame. So rather read the sentence, Umin, Habahema, um, Hatame, those animals that are Tame, that are impure, take two. Why does the Torah go out of its way to call the impure animals it almost gives like the positive of the negative that are not pure. What's the difference between saying the word impurity and then saying the words are not pure? Clearly, it's a length. It's, it's, it's the amount of words you're using. Purity, impurity are not pure. 
And so many, many of the rabbis pick up from this discussion and say that this is a tremendous lesson that one needs to learn um, as human beings, that in fact the Torah, what the Torah is coming to teach is that we should be very, very careful never to say anything improper. We only have one mouth. Interestingly, if you've looked at your face lately, you have two eyes, two ears, two nostrils, two hands, two feet. Everything is double. The only thing that is one is your mouth because in from your mouth you hold the power of life and death. And so the rabbis teach us that what comes out of our mouth is of vital importance and has a powerful, powerful effect on the people around us. And since we only have one mouth, we should only use that mouth for good, for speaking well. And uh, certainly today, in a world of obscenity, in a world where one can say whatever one wants to say, in whichever manner one wants to say it, um, it's common practice, like nobody ricochets when one hears people speaking um, with, with language that is, you know, that, that trickles with obscenity and, and, and swearing and um, improper language. Today, we've become immune to it. But the Torah teaches us that that shouldn't be that way, that if the Torah itself went out of its way to describe the non-kosher animals in a positive, negative way, meaning animals that are not pure, using good speech to describe something that is unpleasant or wrong, then so too we should learn that um, we should go out of our way, maybe using a longer expression, uh, but one should be very careful that every word that we speak should not be improper. And certainly when it comes to obscenity and all of that, that certainly is not, is not discussed. It's even talking where you're, you're not swearing and you're wanting to say something. Um, it's almost the same as positive speaking, positive thought. You can say, I'm sick or you can say, I'm not that well. Um, it has a different connotation and it's certainly more digestible, more cleaner, um, more kinder um, in discussing it. And there's many, many stories in the Talmud which, which talks about pure speech. Just to share one, the Talmud tells a story that in the time of the Beit HaMikdash, in the time of the temple, when a person sinned, they would bring a sacrifice to the temple and portions of the sacrifice would be eaten by the Kohanim, by the, by the priests. Now, if the sacrifice was large, they would make a good meal out of it. And if it was small, then they would all just receive a small portion. So the Talmud goes on to describe three kohanim, three priests that were sitting around one evening and they were discussing the sacrifices they had eaten. So one said, ah, I got a piece the size of a bean. And the second said, ah, nah, my portion was the size of an olive. The third one said, I got a piece like a lizard's tail. Okay. Just that expression that he used a non-kosher animal and that he described it the way he did raised suspicions. And when the sages inspected his family line to determine if he actually belonged um, to the hereditary Cohen priesthood, they found out that he didn't. And that was like a sign to know that he, he wasn't of the proper lineage. So here the Torah goes out of its way to teach us a powerful lesson. Speak nicely. Speak, never mind, not with obscenity, but even in the power of speech that you're, you're speaking. In the descriptions that you have, 
use refined language because the Torah went out of its way to um, show that refinement, and certainly then so too should we. Another interesting thing, it's when it talks about the animals coming in, both the kosher and the non-kosher, um, we have the description says ish ve ishto, man and woman, meaning it and its partner. Um, but when it comes to the next verse where it's talking about the birds, okay, shiva shiva zachar nekeva, it says male and female. So the rabbis uh, bring out just an interesting observation. Why did they, when they talk about the animals, do they say man and his wife? And when it's talking about the birds, it's saying male and female. So uh, we're taught that an animal is similar to a human being because they bear their young alive and they're like whole animals, they're like whole human beings. So when they're talking about the animal kingdom, they're talking about man and woman. But when they're talking about the birds who don't give birth to live offspring but rather lay eggs, it just says male and female. Just a very interesting idea always when we're learning and looking inside the authentic Hebrew, how much information one can can glean from it. Um, what happened now is that this is we're standing at the tenth um, day of the month of Cheshvan, and there are seven days until the the the, the flood gates are open. Now, in those seven days, what was happening? What was the purpose of giving kind of like a seven? Day lead time. Well, the first we are taught was is that what the last righteous person, save of Noach, except for Noach and his family, passed away. His name was Metushelach, and they the families were sitting shiva for him, and uh, in respect, as respect to honor Metushelach, um, the 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 flood was postponed. God went and taught us that we need to um, pay tribute. To a righteous person, when he passes away, we need to look at that when, 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 when we're in Shiva. So God waited the seven days, told Noach, you know, prepare yourself, get into the ark. I'm bringing the rain, but I'm not bringing it in its entirety because we have to respect and give time to lament for the righteous Metushelach that had passed away. Another, another, um, uh, explanation that is given is that after the seven days during which the, after the seven days, what happened is that God went and changed nature. He caused the sun to rise in the west and set to the east, and he made the whole nature, the natural process of things, upside down, hoping that still the wicked that were around would actually turn to be righteous. Nevertheless, all the people, as we know, did not pay attention to that. And one of the other things we were taught is that a tremendous amount of pleasure was allowed into the world in those seven days. So people could actually taste what Olam Haba, what the world to come would taste like and maybe awaken them in that manner. But that, too, did not happen. And so this seven-day grace period for Noach and his family was that they should prepare themselves and that they should all come into the ark and get ready for their maiden voyage. And uh, from from the the remainder of the world, it was and it was supposed to be an awakening for them to you know realize where they were at, even though they didn't really really understand or take heed of what was happening around them.
God says, um, I am going to flood the world. I'm going to send rain to the world for 40 days and for 40 nights. Now, we know that the rains lasted 150 days. Uh, Noah was on this boat for a very, very long time. He only disembarked some 11 and a half months later simply because uh, he waited for the waters to dissipate. This was going to be a very long cruise. Um, but for 40 days and 40 nights, it says that the wellsprings below and above flooded the earth. Now, many of the rabbis pick up, why did God decide on 40 days and 40 nights? Why not 20 days, 20 nights? Why not 100 days, 100 nights? Why exactly 40 days and 40 nights? So Rashi goes and explains that the 40 days corresponds to the period of a child's formation. For by sinning, they had troubled the Creator to form illegitimate children. And the, the Vayikra Rabbah also picks up this um, idea that 40 days following conception, um, the, the embryo is forming. Now, a very interesting, there's very interesting halachic discussions then around, God forbid, abortion and uh, also uh, around the idea of when is an embryo considered an embryo. And this 40-day mark um, plays a significant role halachically um, in terms of Jewish law as to how we determine what and when um, we consider the embryo a live human being. And where do we learn it from? We learn it, we learn it from here. But I don't want to get into the halacha, but rather to say why, why if the 40 days and 40 nights was the same, like agreed, like fell in, in sync with the 40 days of the formation of the embryo, why do we have this idea? Because basically the Torah teaches us those in those 40 days, the features of the, the, the embryo are formed. And what had happened in the world now on a macrocosmic level was that there was a corruption of the features of the world, okay? Um, the, the face of humanity had changed unbelievably. And so in order to cleanse it measure for measure, the 40 days corresponded to the, corresponded to the 40-day period of the formation of the embryo. One other interesting thing um, in terms of gematria is that um, – Gezel, robbery, um, has a gematria of 40 gimelus, 3, Zion is 7, that's 10, Lamed is 30, that's 40 altogether. God, if you recall in the past um, discussions we've had, God was destroying the world because of robbery. So in order to get rid of the robbery, get rid of it in its entirety, it had to rain for 40 days and for 40 Night. Absolutely fascinating how, again, when we look at all the, the various aspects of the verses, that we learn so much just from the nuances and the way that the word um, is used, the way that certain words you know, come in and we, 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 we see either that it could have been superfluous and what we can learn from it. So as always... These things are absolutely fascinating. We're going to go for a break now, and I want you to remain tuned in um, because I'm now going to show you an absolutely fascinating, interesting discussion um, from the idea of Noah's flood happen- happening in the year that Noah turned 600. So hang in there. We'll be back soon. You're listening to Robertson Adol Kazilski. 
Welcome back. And uh, we're discussing the flood that is about to come upon planet Earth. And uh, I want to share with you something absolutely fascinating, which um, it's always boggled my mind. And the evidence that is shown to verify the authenticity of this is quite Boggling. We're taught, and we spoke about it quite a while ago when we were learning Genesis, that why did God create the world in six days? Why couldn't we have had a nine-day week, a three-day week, a five-day week? Why, Dafka, do we have six day, excuse me, six days of creation and then a seventh day where we rest? And uh, the the Talmud tells us. That the reason why we have six days, one of the reasons is that there were going to be six eras of a thousand years each. And, um, if you look very carefully into the Talmud, Rabbi Moshe ben Nachman, Nachmanides describes a unique theme for each of the millennia and cor- it corresponds to the themes of the six days in which the world was created, etc., etc. And I, I, I have a lengthy discussion on it. You can go back into the podcasts and you can pick up. I went through each millennia and, um, explained it in, 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 in much more, uh, um, elaborate fashion. What I'd like to do today, though, is that I'd like to see where we are in the in the in the the course of history, where we are in terms of this millennia, and what what does it all mean? Because right now we're in the sixth millennium, according to Jewish thought. Okay, and the final day of history. If each each day of Genesis corresponds to a thousand years. Then in the year 5001, okay, um, by the Jewish calendar, we entered the last day of creation. And I wanted to draw back um, now and look at it in terms of the Gregorian calendar and see where we're at there. Now, this is all based um, on a, a, a discussion that was given over by Rabbi Shalom Dovber of Lubavitch, uh, the Rebbe Rashab, in 1902. And he mapped out in part for us the sixth millennium in periods of a 24-hour day. So just very quickly, because it actually is quite fascinating, the year 5000, where would we find ourselves in the Gregorian calendar? And if we are coming close to the year 6000, which we are, we are in the year 5779, where are we and what is absolutely happening? Well, to begin with, if we have one day that is a thousand years, then one hour of that cosmic day is 41 years and eight months. One minute is 0.7, seven twelfths of a year. And um, a year lifespan in our time is one minute 44 in cosmic time. That is just an interesting calculation just so that you understand. But the year 5000, 5001, um, corresponded to the year 1240 in the Gregorian calendar. 1240 in the Gregorian calendar. Now, we know that a 24-hour period will go like this. We know that we start Jewish, through Jewish thought, we always start our days at night. That's why Shabbos starts at night, Yontav starts at night, because that is the beginning of our day. Right, so we have nightfall. 
Nightfall then will continue up to midnight. Midnight will then fall into dawn. Dawn will fall into sunrise. Then we'll move into noon. And then from noon, we will go towards the next day. So when we look at the period 5,000 to 6,000, which is the last day um, of creation, we're looking at, I'm, I'm going to be looking at nightfall, midnight, dawn, sunrise, noon. We're afternoon. We're in the afternoon of the sixth millennium, which means that we are pretty close to the end of this world. No, the world's not going to end today or tomorrow, even though it is raining outside here in Johannesburg. But we are coming close to an incredible revelation. So just stick with me and let me try explain in a, in a very shortened way what happened in this sixth millennium. Well, 1240 was the entry into the sixth millennium. We know that since the 10th century, there were two large cities that dominated the world platform. That was Cordova and Baghdad. We are told that at that point in time, there was close to over a million um, you know, people in, in, in each city. And they were both centers of scholarship, of, of literature, of engineering, of architecture, of philosophy. We know there were massive libraries. There were hospitals. Uh, there were, there were academics. And we, there, what we could be saying, particularly in, in, uh, Cordova was that it was the age of the Arabic culture. Okay. Um, Europe hadn't really, really Come into being, but what happened in 1236, very close to the 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 next millennium happening, Cordova was sacked by Ferdinand III. The red of the rest of Andalusia fell under the conquest of Seville in 1248, and Baghdad was eventually, I think, ten years later, sacked by the Mongols. And within a period of two decades, the whole civilization, the Arab civilization. It, it, it probably never never recovered again. Um, it really got an absolute smack. The same thing that was happening in uh, in 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 uh, in Baghdad happened in what we knew as the Golden Age of Spain. We had uh, the we were living there um, in Spain. There was a tremendous amount of culture there, etc., etc. And uh, this, there, there, there became a huge shift, and that shift happened in round about 1490, which will correspond to uh, midnight. Certainly, the event of in Jewish history, understand we had the, the destruction of the temple um, of Jerusalem, and then the majority of, Jude, of, of the Jewish people moved into Spain. Spain had become the second homeland of the Jewish people. There was a wealth of scholarship, a wealth of culture there, 1492, just as we rung out um, midnight um, in the cosmic calendar, we landed up having the terrible decree of Ferdinand and Isabella, and uh, we were plunged into absolute darkness. As the day, cosmic day represents, we are now sitting at midnight in the dark hours of 1 o'clock and 2 o'clock in the morning. At the same time, um, a dawning was being placed, because we know around about the same midnight, Columbus sailed the ocean, okay, and a whole new world was about to be opened to to Europe, which is absolutely interesting. Through that dark time, though, that midnight to to noon, we had the Jews also running now into 
Europe. There was a renaissance happening. Jews f- arrived in Florence and in Venice and in Naples, Rome in the south of France. Later, then they would emigrate to England, to the Netherlands, to the north of France, Prague, Krakow. All of these had renaissances that, that, that were happening, and a reformation was absolutely Coming So even though it was a very dark period um, after the expulsion from Spain and the Jews moving into Europe, um, there was a flourishing of, of, of Judaism. And though we suffered terribly, we were, we were starting to have a revelation of Torah. In fact, we're told that while Prague and Krakow and northern Italy was flourishing, so too was a tiny city um, in the land of Israel called Tzfat. Okay, um, it was there that started Tzfat started prospering um, and being a haven for the refugees of Spain and Portugal, and it soon became a center of uh, of, of Judaism, of culture, of, of and particularly of mysticism. And it will be this mysticism, this Kabbalah, that now will have its spillover because in 1573, which is now coming towards the morning wa- uh, watch, as we know, we know morning is a process. We don't all wake up at the same time. The Talmud tells us that the morning, the first inklings of morning occurs at two-thirds of the night. It's called the morning watch, around about two o'clock in the morning. The soul of the Arizal, the famous Kabbalist of Tzfat, Rabbi Yitzchak Luria, we said um, he was revealed in the year 5333, which is 1573, and he started now uh, composing the Zohar, the book which we know now today to be fundamental in our understanding of the mystical area of Torah. You're listening to Robertson Adol Kazilski. Welcome back. We're transversing the history of the world, but we are going to get very close to where Nah plays a part. Uh, we've just were discussing, uh, the, the beginnings of the, the, the Kabbalist 1573, which is around about two in the morning. When we get to 1740, the year 1740, which is the morning watch, we see that in towns like Mezibuzh, we have Rabbi Yisrael ben Eliezer, later known as the Baal Shem Tov, listed there as a resident. In fact, we're told, Tradition tells us that um, he arrived in Mezibuzh in 1740. Six years earlier, he had already abandoned his secrecy and he began to teach. The Baal Shem Tov began teaching his teachings. There was another great rabbi at the time, Rabbi Chaim Ibn Attar. He left Morocco um, and he um, was on his way to the land of Israel. Interestingly, he was detained by the Jewish community in Livorno, Italy, for almost 10 years. There he wrote his classic commentary on the five books of Moses. And he said there in 1740, the year 5,500, that we're at the time of the dawn and the lights of the future redemption are beginning to sparkle. He arrived in Israel in 1742. Um, the Baal Shem Tov left Mezibosh to meet him there. Unfortunately, he was unsuccessful. He never made it to Israel. And Rabbi Chaim died in Jerusalem in 1743. The Baal Shem Tov did say, he was quoted as saying, that had the two of them met, then Mashiach would certainly have arrived. 1790 is the time of the sunrise. And uh, the sunrise, when the sun rose on the, the on, on humanity, we saw um, the Declaration of the Rights of Man and of the Citizen that was passed in August of 1789. 
1792, this is all happening in France, a republic was declared, uh, Louis XVI was executed, Napoleon came to power, um, there was the whole Russian Revolution, the Tanya, the first mystic book um, in man's Simple language was published by the Alter Rebbe Rav Zaman of Liadi, and we start seeing the dawning of the redemption. Now, here's the interesting part, and linking it into what we're learning today, 1840, um, in the Gregorian calendar, we have a flood, interestingly. The Zohar speaks about it, and it 1840 corresponds to the year 5,600. And I want you to concentrate on 600 because we just learned that Noah was 600 when the flood started. So it's the 600th year of the life of Noah, all, all the wellsprings burst open and the windows of heaven are opened. The flood starts. The Zohar, the Kabbalistic work, goes and says that in the 600th year of the 6th millennium, the gates of supernal wisdom will be opened, as will the gates of earthly wisdom, and this will cause the world to become elevated and prepare it for the 7th millennium. Now, 1741, sorry, 1840 onwards, what do we see? We see the Industrial Revolution. And from there, folks, it's kind of been downhill. What we have seen is an exponential burst of secular knowledge and Torah knowledge flooding the earth um, in, a, in, a, in a huge way. It's been raining for a long time. And we have seen, and just think about it, absolutely crazy that the world can remain the way it kind of remained for 5,600 years. And then suddenly in in, 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 in 150, 200 years, we have revolutionized the place where statistically a person would die by the age of 40. Um, six out of 10 children would have never made adulthood. Today we are living into the 80s and 90s and only 0.2% of uh, children do not make it into their adolescence. Absolutely an, a, a mind-boggling thing. And so just as there was a deluge at the time of Noah, so too did we see that happening in the year 600 of the world. And um, we are now sitting, we hit noon in 1990. Um, and, you know, 1990 was absolutely unbelievable because the Communist Party fell, that there was the Gulf War, etc., etc., and what we have seen is a tremendous shift. We're now in 2019. We are in the afternoon of uh, the greater picture of the cosmic picture, and certainly everything that we have around us, including High FM, and all the marvelous, marvelous ways that we can communicate knowledge of the world, we have a flood of knowledge, and all of this is to bring us to understand that we are we are at the dawn of an incredible redemption. So I'm leaving you with that thought today, and uh, just think about it when you spend your days, wherever you are at work, you know, doing lift schemes. This world is waiting for a redemption, and we are so very close. And what each and every one of us can do is just do another random act of goodness and kindness, take on another mitzvah, because we're almost there.